0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Subtle as a Sledgehammer, Jesus Cleanses the Temple for the third Sunday in Lent, March the 19th, 2006. Think about your earliest memories and images of Jesus. If you are white, American, and Protestant, you might visualize a painting by Warner Salman, the head of Christ from 1940, Jesus with flowing blonde hair and saccharine blue eyes. Salmon's Jesus, reproduced 500 million times, according to one estimate, stares into space. He's clean, safe, passive, and effeminate which is perhaps why Christians have plastered this image in many a child's Sunday school room. It's hard to fathom why such a harmless and respectable-looking citizen would ever be arrested, beaten to a pulp, and crucified by establishment authorities. Clearly, he wouldn't hurt a flea. Solomon's painting illustrates how easily we domesticate the deity, creating Jesus in our own image so that we can then co-opt him for our own purposes. The reading this week from John's Gospel, Chapter 2, 13-22, challenges all such self-serving projections. The cleansing of the temple, which is really only a delicate euphemism to describe the only violent act of Jesus, occurs in all four Gospels. It's an unnerving story that reminds us that there's no such thing as business as usual with Jesus, and that all who come to him must come on his terms, not ours. All three synoptic writers situate this story at the end of Jesus' ministry, sandwiching it between his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the parable of the tenants. Mark chapter 11, Matthew chapter 21, and Luke chapter 19. John, however, places the story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In my Bible, on the third page of his Gospel, where except for the wedding at the Cana of Galilee, in chapter 2, it looms as Jesus' first public act. Maybe there was more than one temple cleansing, but given the radical nature of the act, that seems improbable. The verbatim literary similarities in all four gospel accounts and the fact that John mentions three or maybe even four distinct Passovers signal that John cares more about theological confession than chronological precision. As an observant Jew, Jesus joined the throngs of pilgrims who trekked to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover at the temple. According to the Jewish historian Josephus in his Antiquities, construction on the temple began in 20 B.C. under Herod the Great and was completed by Herod Agrippa around A.D. 63. A bustling nexus of commercial activity, crowds of worshippers, nationalist aspirations, political identity, historical memory, architectural splendor, and certainly of religious affiliation, the temple constituted the essence of Jewish faith in both a literal and a symbolic manner. When Jesus entered the temple, he encountered men selling cattle, sheep, and doves to the pilgrims, who needed them to make their obligatory sacrifices. They also needed to exchange their Roman currency into Jewish money in order to pay the temple tax in the coinage of what was known as the Sanctuary Shekel, Exodus 30, verses 11-16. to And so we read that Jesus also meant these money changers. And then the only thing we can say is that all hell broke loose. Incensed at the sacrilege of it all, Jesus improvised a whip, thrashed the animals from the temple, scattered the coffers of the money changers, and overturned their tables. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Later, his disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and attached a sense of prophetic fulfillment to the event. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's not clear whether Jesus objected to any and all commercial activity in the temple, out of principle, even honest transactions that were necessary for pilgrims to fulfill their religious obligations, or whether he excoriated the fraud, exploitation, and avarice of the religious authorities who controlled the means of ritual purity and thus controlled access to God. When asked to justify his violent actions with a sign, Jesus refused. Instead of any interpretation, justification, or explanation, he responded with an enigmatic saying, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Long after the event, his disciples interpreted Jesus' dark saying as a prediction of his death and resurrection. In his dramatic outbursts, Jesus joined a violent act with an enigmatic saying that has elicited several layers of interpretation, A few people see a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the temple that eventually occurred in 70 AD. A simpler interpretation understands the story as a restoration or purification of the temple to its sacred purpose, as a place of prayer for all people, without manipulation or exploitation by by the establishment gatekeepers. A third nuance suggests that in his own body, in his own impending death and resurrection that John mentions on the first pages of his gospel, Jesus fulfills all the functions of the temple building as the place for a person to meet God. To be sure, in the words of the British New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett, here, as in all of John's gospel, we're to understand that in Jesus The eternal purposes of God find their fulfillment. No doubt the disciples tossed and turned a long, sleepless night that evening. It must have been terribly disconcerting to witness Jesus unhinged, throwing furniture, screaming at the top of his lungs, flinging money into the air. Perhaps they ran for cover with the crowd. I know I would have. Did they look him in the eyes the next morning? Or shuffle their feet, stare at the ground, and make small talk? I liken their experience to the crazy uncle syndrome. Who might predict the next outrageous act or violent outburst? I read the cleansing of the temple as a stark warning against any and every false sense of security. Misplaced allegiances, religious presumption, pathetic excuses, smug self-satisfaction, spiritual complacency, nationalist zeal, political idolatry, and economic greed in the name of God are only some of the tables that Jesus would overturn in his own day and in ours. Church is more than a place to enjoy a night of bingo or to reinforce my many prejudices and illusions. Thank God, then, for the psalmist this week who concludes with a prayer that is wonderfully appropriate this Lenten season. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14. And now for further reflection. How and why have we domesticated Jesus into a meek and mild Savior? To what extent did Jesus use violence to cleanse the temple? Consider how some of our deepest religious impulses and places in this story, the temple, lead us astray. How might we avoid all forms of false religious security? And finally, Consider the ways that we sanitize the Jesus story. For books this week, I review Yaroslav Pelikan, Acts, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible, Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2005, 320 pages. Any new book by Yaroslav Pelikan is an automatic read for me. I can't think of another writer whose erudition in the service of the Church fires my mind and soul more than Pelikan. Magisterial, meticulous, encyclopedic, prolific, and prodigious, Pelikan is the Sterling Professor Emeritus of History at Yale, where he served on the faculty from 1962 to 1996, and also as the past president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2004, he received the Library of Congress's annual John W. Kluge Prize in the Human Sciences, which included a million-dollar award focusing on academic disciplines not covered by the Nobel Prizes. Most colleagues in his guild consider him the greatest historian of Christian thought in his generation. Born in 1923 and showing no signs of scholarly fatigue, Pelican converted from his Lutheran heritage to Eastern Orthodoxy a few years ago. In fact, he dedicates this book to, quote, my liturgical family ain't at St. Vladimir's that is, a Russian Orthodox seminary in New York. So this book, like many of his recent publications, exemplifies his hearty and unapologetic embrace of Christian Orthodoxy, with a small o. Noting that even the most extravagant claims made about the Bible enjoy their moment in the sun, Pelican admits that in his commentary it is, quote, based upon what may turn out to be the most radical presupposition of all, that the Church really did get it right in its liturgies, creeds, and councils, yes, and even in its dogmas." Pelican's volume is the first in this Brazos series that will publish distinctly theological commentaries, as opposed to traditional exegetical commentaries written by Old and New Testament technical specialists. Stanley Hauerwas of Duke, for example, is writing the volume on the Gospel of Matthew. Pelican's method, then, is refreshingly different than most commentaries. For each of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, he focuses on three distinct theological themes. Acts 15, for example, provides opportunity to discuss controversy and polemics, along with the emergence of creeds and councils, while for Acts 17, natural revelation takes center stage. In sum, then, the 84 themes traversed most all of Christian theology. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, The disciples were instructed not to depart from Jerusalem until so instructed. Then in the final chapter, we read in Acts 28.16, And so we came to Rome. Pelican writes, quote, Six monosyllables in English. This sentence is the signal that the way, chapter 11.26, was being transferred, or rather, already had been, to a world stage and was no longer hidden in a corner, chapter 26, verse 26. These words from the first chapter and from the last chapter are the bookends of the Acts of the Apostles, end quote. Whether treating matters of history, theology, rhetoric, philology, the Greek and Roman classics, textual variants, creeds, councils, art, music, and the early mothers and fathers of the church, Pelican displays a deft and judicious touch, an eloquent writing style, a staggering command of the sources, and a sensitivity for what Florovsky called the predicament of the Christian historian, who must abide by the canons of his discipline while not suppressing his own vibrant faith commitment, Pelican compares this to a young doctor doing brain surgery on his mother. All this inspires confidence, says Pelican, in the gospel of Jesus Christ as proclaimed by the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Yaroslav Pelican acts the brazos theological commentary on the Bible. For film this week, I review Saints and Soldiers from the year 2003. Is it just my imagination, or do most war films feature a character named Sarge? The characters always talk tough to one another, ask where their buddy is from, play cards, smoke precious cigarettes, and beat the odds. One hails from Brooklyn, another from the Louisiana Bayou. One is a pacifist with moral qualms, another a hardened atheist. Despite the many awards this film won, I found it predictable and mediocre. Here's the plot. Four American soldiers are trapped behind enemy lines, and when they are joined by a stranded British paratrooper, they realize that they have vital information that they must smuggle back to the Americans. So they trudge through bitter snow and accomplish the task. No, that was never in doubt. Along the way, they encounter a Belgian housewife in an abandoned farmhouse who feeds them. Pretty nice. One of the soldiers, Deacon, a former missionary, speaks German so fluently and with so little accent that he gets them past Nazi soldiers. Hmm. The film does humanize the soldiers, though, including a sympathetic Nazi. So they are thus not only warriors, but also saints. Saints and soldiers from the year 2003. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a short poem by John F. Dean who was born in 1943. The title of the poem is Mercy, and I've taken it from Stanley Hauerwas's book The Cross-Shattered Christ. Dean's poem appears in his own book entitled Manhandling the Deity. Unholy we sang this morning and prayed as if we were not broken. Crooked, the Christ-figure hung, splayed on bloodied beams above us. Devious God, dweller in shadows, mercy on us. Immortal, cross-shattered Christ, your gentle grace down upon us. Mercy by John F. Dean Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, March the 19th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.